Okay. Are you ready to finish this material? Praise the Lord. Okay. Now we're talking about the oath. The oath that time would be no longer. Uh, many modern versions translate that there would no longer be any delay. That is not a good translation. We're going to notice. I'm going to give you the reasons why. Uh, let me read you a statement from Ellen White, Seventh Adventist Bible Commentary, Volume 7, page 971. She's talking about the expression, time will be no longer. This time, which the angel declares with a solemn oath, is not the end of this world's history, neither of probationary time, but of prophetic time, which should precede the advent of our Lord. Now listen carefully. That is, the people will not have another message upon definite time. Now what part of not have don't we understand? Yeah, because people are reapplying all kinds of prophecies. Oh, I know. Nebuchadnezzar's insanity in the 1290 and the 1335, and you know, um, and, and I know that they're not, they say they're not setting dates. They say they're, they're not saying, you know, this prophecy begins at this date. But, you know, some are saying, well, you know, the, the 1260 uh, days, you know, the beginning of them will be the National Sunday Law, and then they give another moment for the universal Sunday law, and then they say, well, you know, after that you're going to have the time of trouble in the coming of Jesus. It's almost like setting a time. And Ellen White says, don't talk about time. Don't hang our message on time. The three angels' messages can stand on their own. Amen. She says, this message announces the end of the prophetic periods. The disappointment of those who expected to see our Lord in 1844 was indeed bitter to those who had so ardently looked for his appearing. It was not in the Lord's order that this, it was, excuse me, in the Lord's order that this disappointment should come and that hearts should be revealed. Now you notice that Ellen White says here that this does not refer to the end of the history of the world and it doesn't refer to the close of probation. There's good biblical reason for that. Notice the next two points. The time referred to in this verse cannot mean the end of human history for at least two reasons. Number one, this announcement is made during the period of the sixth trumpet. Correct? Amen. The sixth trumpet is Revelation 9, 13 to 21. Then you have Revelation 10. And the seventh trumpet is Revelation 11, verses 15 through 17. So in between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet you have Revelation 10. It's occurring between the sixth and seventh trumpet. So this announcement is made during the period of the sixth trumpet. And when Jesus does not come, and Jesus does not come to take over his kingdom until when? Until the seventh trumpet. So are you understanding why this cannot be referring to the end of history? When does the end of history come? When Jesus takes over his kingdom and during the seventh trumpet. But this happens during the sixth trumpet. So time will be no longer, and the sixth trumpet cannot mean the end of the world. 
That's the first point. Now the second point is, this is even more significant, after the announcement was made that time will be no longer, John was instructed to prophesy again. How could he do this if the world had come to an end? Are you with me or not? After the declaration is made, time will be no longer. Then John is told, after the bittersweet book episode, he says, prophesy again. What good would it do to prophesy again if the world had come to an end? So time will be no longer must refer to an event other than the close of probation or the second coming of Jesus. Now the translation, there should no longer be any delay, is incorrect. Amen. And let me give you the reasons why. In the book of Revelation, the word chronos, where we get our word chronology from, is used three other times. And notice the inconsistency. And in none of them can the word be translated in such a way. Now the word time appears in at least 30 places in the New Testament. But not once is it translated delay by modern versions except in this verse. So the word appears 30 times in the New Testament, 3 times in Revelation. Never is it ever translated in modern versions delay except in this one verse. That means that they have an agenda. For example, in Matthew, uh, by the way, the New Testament has a word of expressing a delay. For example, in Matthew 24, 48, the word chronizo is used of the unfaithful servant who says, my master is delayed. So if John had meant delay, he would have used chronizo instead of using uh, the word chronos. So anyway, um, this is not talking about um, any delay. Speaking about prophetic time. Now Ellen White has repeatedly warned us not to set times for any prophetic event. After 1844, there can be no more tracing of prophetic time. And I have a couple of statements here. This is uh, Review and Herald, July 21, 1851. She says, Dear brethren, the Lord has shown me that the message of the third angel must go and be proclaimed to the scattered children of the Lord and that it should not be hung on time. For time will never be a test again. I saw that some were getting a false excitement arising from preaching time that the third angel's message was stronger than time can be. I saw that this message can stand on its own foundation and that it needs not time to strengthen it and that it will go in mighty power and do its work and will be cut short in righteousness. No need to attach a date or a time to the third angel's message. It's strong in itself. It has its own power. And then there's another statement here uh, that is found in Selected Messages, Volume 2, page 84. She says, There will always be false and fanatical movements made by persons in the church, notice, in the church, who claim to be led of God, those who will run before they are sent, and will give day and date for the occurrence of unfulfilled prophecy. The enemy is pleased to have them do this for their successive failures and leading into false lines cause 
confusion and unbelief. That's a powerful statement. Uh, and there are many others. If you want a whole chapter of statements in the book uh, Last Day Events, uh, there's one called the, uh, the Times and the Seasons, I think is the title of it. And it gives you a whole series of statements of Ellen White on not setting time. And uh, by the way, uh, I'm sure you're aware that uh, Jesus is supposed to come next year in May, right? Yeah. <laughs> According to Harold Camping yeah. of Family Radio. Um, I've, been, I've just been praying to the Lord that uh, he's alive at that time. Uh, <laughs> yes? Do you think that includes also just events like maybe Sunday laws in a few months? Even though that's not a definite time, don't you think some people put that as a... We can't do that. Because we, know how, we don't have a thus saith the Lord on that point. Amen. You know, uh, it's dangerous to set time periods. You know, uh, there was a lady called Marion Barry uh, who wrote a book many years ago uh, where, where she predicted the Sunday law back in the 1980s by reapplying the 1260, 1290, and 1335. What happens is when it doesn't happen according to the time scale that people establish, then what do people do? They not only disbelieve the person who gave the interpretation, they come to disbelieve the Bible. Ellen White makes that point very, very clear. And so we should not get all caught up in, in this issue of time. You know, and some people, for example, I'm, I'm sure you're aware of the way that people interpret Revelation chapter 17. Some, even within the church. They say that the seven heads, five are fallen, one is, and one is not yet to come, are seven popes that have ruled since 1929. Because they believe that the deadly wound was healed in 1929. That's a traditional view. I don't believe that. You say, you don't? No, because Revelation says that it's not Italy that would heal the deadly wound, it's the United States. Amen. And in 1929, it was Italy that returned the, the papal states to the papacy. Revelation 13 makes it clear that the United States will give the sword back to the papacy. It's not Italy. Uh, so, so they say that, you know, when John Paul II was alive, the five that are fallen are the five up to the time of John Paul II. The one who is was John Paul II, and the one who has not yet come is now Benedict XVI. So he's going to be the last pope. Now tell me, how is that not setting time? It's just a, it's just a, a, a diplomatic way of setting time. And what does it do? It makes people excited. This is the last pope, folks. You know, we need to get down to business. Jesus is coming soon. Benedict XVI, when he dies, that's it. And what happens if, if another pope is elected? Then people disbelieve prophecy. They don't only disbelieve the prophet, they disbelieve prophecy. And it's happened time and time again. The same thing has happened. Ellen White says they'll set one time and another time. She says eventually they'll set a time that is true so far in the future. And so let's not get caught up in this issue of time. Let's preach the three angels' message. The three angels' messages can stand on their own feet. Yes. Correct. In 29, she just was aware of there was a process beginning. 
Absolutely. It, it, in other words, it was you could say probably the process of the healing of the deadly wound began. But it was very, very at much at the beginning. But, but Revelation chapter 13 makes it clear that the healing of the deadly wound is brought about when the United States returns the sword to the hand of the papacy so that the papacy can persecute. By the way, do you, if you want documentation on this, I wrote a book called Prophecies, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. You know the story of Jekyll and Hyde? You know, it was a guy who had a split personality. Jekyll was the good side and Hyde was the bad side. Well, you know, you have the beast of Revelation 13. It has two horns like a lamb, but speaks like a dragon. It has a split personality. And, of course, that represents the United States. I go into all of these details about, you know, we, we haven't really given enough attention to the meaning of the sword. It says that the beast killed with the sword, and the beast would be killed with the sword, or would get the deadly wound with the sword. And, you know, we've assumed that the sword represents the Bible. It can't represent the Bible. It can't represent the Bible in Revelation 13, because the beast did not use the Bible to kill people. The same sword he used to kill is the sword that would give him the deadly wound. See, the word sword has another symbolic meaning besides the Bible. In Romans chapter 13, the Apostle Paul says that the civil power has the sword. So there, what was, what was it that gave the deadly wound to the papacy? Civil. It was the civil government of France, right? And when will it have the sword back? When it can use the state once again to persecute. When it gets the sword back. When it gets the backing of the state up again. Okay, let's go back here. Both oaths, there's one in Daniel 12, 7 that we don't have time to get into. Begin with an angel swearing in the name of the eternal God who lives forever and ever. But Revelation adds that God is the creator of heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it. The description of the Creator clearly links the little book episode of Revelation 10 with the first angel's message, where a call is made to worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Is there a link between Revelation 10 and Revelation 14? Yes. And what is that link? A call to proclaim about what? The Creator. Now, thus the prophesying again of verse 11 is directly linked with the first angel's message. In other words, the prophesying again has to do with proclaiming what? The first angel's message again. God's end time remnant will make a direct appeal for people to worship the Creator. This appeal to the Creator in Revelation 10.6 is a clear allusion to the fourth commandment of God's law and ultimately to the institution of the Sabbath at creation. Amen. So what would God's remnant people be proclaiming when the angel gives the oath that time will be no longer? They will be exalting God the Creator. And what is the sign of the Creator? The Sabbath. The Sabbath. So you need to look for a people who begin shortly thereafter keeping what? The keeping God's holy Sabbath. That's right. Now let's talk about the... Are we doing well so far? Let's go to the mystery of God. Revelation 10 verse 7 begins with a strong adversative but. In other words, it's making a contrast. 
This but, thank you, this but clearly makes a separation between when time is no longer under the message of the sixth angel and the moment when the sounding of the seventh trumpet begins and Jesus takes over his kingdom. In other words, the, the mystery of God, according to this, and the moment when Jesus takes over his kingdom are two separate events separated by time. Now, what the text is saying is that the declaration that time will be no longer is made during the period of the sixth trumpet, but the mystery of God will not be finished until the seventh trumpet is about to begin to sound. This clearly shows that the end of prophetic time comes during the sixth trumpet and before what? And before the seventh. You get the point? Now the question is, what is the mystery of God that's going to be finished? Well, let's read a couple of Bible texts and then let's notice what Ellen White uh, had to say. Romans 16, 25 through 27. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith to God alone wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. Question is, what then is the mystery of God? It is the preaching of what? The gospel, the preaching of Jesus, and this was, was held how? It was, it was, in other words, it was held in a veiled form in the past, but when Jesus came, what happened? It was made manifest. Right? In other words, in the Old Testament, it, it was revealed through shadows and types and illustrations. But now when Jesus comes, it is totally unveiled. The mystery is explained. Now, let's read. Uh, by the way, there are many other statements. Just look up the word mystery in the New Testament, and you'll find many other verses that speak about the mystery as being the preaching of the gospel. Uh, Signs of the Times, March 25, 1897. Ellen White says the incarnation of Christ is a mystery. The union of divinity with humanity is a mystery indeed. Hidden with God, even the mystery which hath been hid from ages. It was kept in eternal silence by Jehovah. But then what happened? It was kept in silence, but then it was what? First revealed, First revealed in Eden by the prophecy that the seed of the woman should bruise the serpent's head and that he should bruise his heel. To present to the world this mystery that God kept in silence for eternal ages before the world was created, before man was created, was the part that Christ was to act in the work he entered upon when he came to this earth. And this wonderful mystery, the incarnation of Christ and the atonement that he made, must be declared to every son and daughter of Adam, whether Jew or Gentile. So what is the mystery of God? It's the preaching of what? The gospel of Jesus Christ as Savior. Yes. That's right. 
That's right. And of course the gospel, the gospel is not only the objective fact of what happened in the future, it includes several dimensions. It includes what Jesus did for us and what Jesus does in us. That's why Colossians 1.27 says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And so, uh, but they're all, they're manifestations of the gospel. The saving gospel includes all of the aspects of the ministry of Christ, the ministry of salvation. Now, the mystery of God is finished just before the seventh trumpet begins to sound. Is that point clear? It says when the seventh trumpet is about to sound, the mystery of God is going to be what? Finished. So the mystery of God is finished just before the seventh trumpet begins to sound. At this time, Jesus takes off his priestly robes and put, puts on his garments of vengeance. You know, somebody once, uh, somebody once said to me, uh, you know, Ellen White says that Jesus is going to change his garments. Where does, that, where does the Bible say that? That Jesus is going to change from his priestly to his kingly garments. And I looked at him and I said, uh, well, you know, uh, just use, use a little bit of that gray matter that God gave you. <laughs> he says, oh, what do you mean? I said, well, let me ask you, what is Jesus doing today? He says, oh, well, he's in the sanctuary and he's uh, interceding for us. And I said, uh, what, what is his role? He says, well, he's the high priest. I said, so how is he clothed? He said, well, he's, I suppose he's clothed as a high priest. I said, good, yeah, you're right. I said, how is he going to be clothed when he comes again? And of course, he knew Revelation 19. He says, well, he says he's going to become, he's going to come clothed as king of kings and lord of lords. I said, well, somewhere in between, he must have changed. <laughs> Does that make sense? All the sense in the world. You know, we just have to use our heads and pray for the Lord to help us find these things in the Bible because they are in the Bible. You know, God gave us a brain for a purpose. Now, this is parallel to Daniel 12, verse 1, where the expression to stand up means to begin to rule. Were you aware that when it says that Michael shall stand up, it's talking about Jesus taking over his kingdom? His kingdom by this point, when probation closes, by the way, when probation closes, the kingdom of Jesus is made up. Because all of his people have been sealed for salvation. All he needs to do is come and gather them into his, into his barn. Those are two separate things. One is to separate the wheat from the chaff, and the other thing is to tie them in bundles and then gather them, burn the chaff, and then gather the wheat into the barn. Are you following me or not? And uh, this is the unique aspect of Adventism. Our uniqueness is in the fact that we begin, we believe in a pre-Advent investigative judgment. That makes us unique. Because everybody believes in the um, uh, executive judgment when Jesus comes. You know, the wicked will be destroyed and the righteous will be saved. But that there's going to be an investigative judgment of those who claim the name of Christ before the second coming, uh, that's unique to the Adventist church. Now, it is also parallel to Revelation 15, 5 through 8, where the temple service closes when the tribulation is about to begin. It says the temple is filled with smoke, and no one was able to enter the temple until the seven last plagues had been poured out. Let me ask you, when the seven plagues are poured out, has probation closed? Yes. 
Yes. Of course. Absolutely. So what does it mean that the temple was built, filled with smoke and nobody was able to enter until the seven last plagues were poured out? Can we enter the temple today? By the way, that word temple is naos, which means the most holy place in the book of Revelation. Can we enter that temple today? So how do you do it? You enter there by faith, right? We enter there in our minds. That's why God gave us a description of the sanctuary so we can kind of visualize and follow what Jesus is doing right now in the most holy place of the sanctuary. And so, uh, is there a time coming when people are no longer going to be able to enter the temple? Of course, while the plagues are falling. Revelation 11 verse 15 makes it clear that the kingdoms of the earth become the kingdoms of Jesus when the seventh trumpet sounds. So you see the sequence? Mighty angel descends from heaven. He has in his hand a little book having been opened. He plants one foot on the sea and one foot on the land. There's going to be a universal message. And he's opening up the little book that has the judgment hour message. And then he lets out a roar, like the roar of a lion. And the roar of the lion, he utters certain words, and they peal like thunder across the sky. And basically this is an indication that there was going to be a disappointment. And they were disappointed. God covered a mistake. And then after this, the angel raises his right hand to heaven and he swears that time will be no longer. This has to be October 22, 1844. That's the last time prophecy to be fulfilled. Right? But then it speaks about the fact that when the, when the, tr the trumpet of the seventh angel is about to sound, what is going to be finished? The mystery of God. What does that mean, the finishing of the mystery of God? It means that no longer will the gospel of salvation be preached with any results because probation has closed. So the mystery of God closes, probation closes, shortly before the seventh angel begins to blow, and then the seventh angel blows his trumpet, and it says the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of Christ. Amen. And he actually takes over the kingdoms of the world that he already gained in the heavenly court of law. See, uh, Jesus says to the devil, he says, hey, I'm not going to fight with you. I'll take you to court. <laughs> and, so, and so Jesus takes the devil to court, and the legal proceedings show that the, devil's, uh, that the devil's a thief. That this doesn't belong to him. It belongs to Jesus. Because he died on the cross. He bought it back. And so, and so the court in heaven says, Hey, take it from that thief and give it to him to whom it belongs. Amen. That's what the judgment does. Jesus takes the devil to court. Everything is done legally. Now, by the way, this same sequence is found in Revelation 22, if you're following the material here. And he said to me, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. What is uh, John, John being told? He's, he said, don't, don't seal this book. What book? Revelation. Revelation. Why would the book be sealed at this point? Can a message still come from the book? If the book isn't sealed, can a message still come from that book? Yes. Absolutely. So is probation still open when this book is, uh, is not sealed? Absolutely. 
But then notice what it says. It says that for the time is at hand. Which time is at hand? The time for what is spoken of in the next verse. It says don't seal the book because there's going to be a message that's going to come out of this book. But then he says the time is at hand. What time is that? Notice verse 11. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. By the way, that's the finishing of the mystery of God. That's when everybody's case will have been decided for life or for death. Were they able to understand the message that came from Revelation before that? Because the book wasn't sealed. But the time was coming when it was going to be what? When probation was going to close. And then notice the next step. Verse 12. And behold, I am coming quickly. Is the second coming separate from the declaration, he was righteous, let him be righteous still, filthy, filthy still? Yes or no? Absolutely. He says, and behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. That's the taking over the kingdom. So notice the three stages. The preaching of the message from the book, while the book is not sealed. Then comes the moment when the book is sealed and the declaration is made that nobody's going to change sides. And then the third declaration is that Jesus comes to give his reward to everyone according to their work. And it's interesting that Jesus would not bring the reward unless the reward had been determined before he brings it. So, you know, we need to prepare for, this. We need to prepare for the close of probation, not for the second coming. Because if we're not ready for the close of probation, we will not be ready for the second coming. The Bible makes this clear in the story of the flood. When were the people outside the ark lost? When the door closed or when it started to rain? When the door closed. <laughs> when the door closed. And yet seven days passed. And Ellen White says that the faith of those inside the ark was severely tested. And she says that those outside became more and more violent every day. There you have the time of trouble. And then you have this cataclysm. By the way, in the Old Testament, there's, a, there's a, a one word that is used for the flood in Noah's day. There are many words for flood in the Old Testament. There's one particular word, the word mabul, which is used exclusively for the flood in Noah's day. And in the New Testament, there are two words for flood. One is the word potamos, which is used, for example, the story of the man who built his house upon the rock and the sand, the floods came. That's the word potamos. But when Jesus speaks about the flood in the days of Noah, the Greek word is kataklismos. In other words, the flood in Noah's day was no local flood. It was a cataclysm. That's where we get the word from. Okay, is this point clear from Revelation 22? Okay, good. Now, Let's talk about the eating of the little book. Let me ask you, is the eating of the little book after the finishing of the mystery of God or before? Folks, it has to be before. Amen. What good would it do to eat the book and say, prophesy again? <laughs> if probation closed. Why would he say, measure the temple, which is the judgment, if the mystery of God was already finished? Are you with me? Yes. 
So this is going back to events before. The closing of the mystery of God is the last event at the end of this passage. Now, let's talk about the eating of the book. And this is a quotation from William Shea. Uh, he was my teacher in the seminary. Brilliant guy. I mean, he'd come to class without any notes, and he'd talk about the measurements of the different archaeological excavations, you know, to the very inch, without any notes whatsoever. He could rattle off figures and numbers and names of places. Simply amazing. In fact, he's a medical doctor. Uh, and he told us one day in class, he says, you know, I, can never, I could never figure out how anyone in his right mind would prefer medicine to archaeology. <laughs> he loved archaeology. But anyway, this is a statement from, his, uh, from uh, the book Symposium on Revelation, Volume 1, page 321. He says, John lived at the beginning of the Christian era when he received this vision. But the prophetic scene itself looks down toward the end of time, long after John's death. Are you understanding what he's saying? Now there's the episode where he's told to eat the book takes place in the first century. But he's looking down to the period of the sixth trumpet. When he's already what? When he's already dead. He should therefore be taken as representative of those who will bear this final message the part he was acting out under those circumstances. It would have been physically impossible for John to have borne this message to all groups he, has, he was told to address. Could he actually go to all nations, tongues, peoples, and kings in the world? This one man? No. We may look, therefore, for a group or movement to fulfill this commission in the end of time. And in Sice's commentary on the book of Revelation, which, by the way, this is not an Adventist. In many ways, it's a very good commentary. Uh, he says this, As remarked long since by Irenaeus, one of the early church fathers, the ancient prophets fulfilled their office of predicting, not merely in the verbal delivery of predictions, but by themselves seeing, hearing, or acting out the things in type which were afterward to be seen, heard, or acted out by others in reality, and this whether in real life or perchance in vision. In all which cases they were to be considered, as they are called in Isaiah and in Zechariah, mothim, that is, figurative or representative persons. So in other words, John is actually representing an action that is going to take place among God's people. He's a representative of God's people because he was not alive during the period of the sixth trumpet. He was long dead. And this eating of the book is happening during the sixth trumpet. It can't be referring to him literally. Are you understanding what I'm saying? Amen. Now, I want you to notice the chiastic structure of this little book episode. Let's go to Revelation chapter 10 and verse 8. Revelation chapter 10 and verse 8. There's a very interesting chiastic structure here which helps us interpret the meaning of this uh, action. 
it says in verse 8, Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. What is it, the book, what is it that the book contains? What is the central aspect of the book? What is the central point that could not be understood while the book was sealed? The judgment. The judgment. So whatever John is eating here, the particular point that is eating is concerning what? The judgment. That's right. Very important. So the judgment message in this little book is going to cause a bittersweet experience. Now let's notice verse 9. So I went to the angel and said to him, give me the little book. And now notice this, the, the order is actually reversed. It says, give me the little book. And he said to me, take it and eat it. And it will make your stomach bitter. See, it starts with the stomach, right? It will make your stomach bitter, but it will be sweet, as sweet as honey in your mouth. That's kind of a weird order. Can something you eat make your stomach bitter before you eat it? Absolutely not. But here it's saying, the order is, take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. But now notice verse 10. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. And notice how he reverses the order. And it was as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. So do you see the order here? It says bitter, sweet, sweet, bitter. Now why is this significant? Let's look at the chiastic structure that you have in your material. And it follows an order of A, B, C, C, B, A in reverse order. Notice the angel tells John to take the scroll and what? Eat it. Then it says, it will be bitter in your stomach, that's 9b. And then it says, in your mouth it will be sweet as honey, that's 9c. So these are the three parts of the ninth verse. Take the scroll and eat it, it will be bitter in your stomach, sweet as honey in your mouth. And then it reverses the order, it says, uh, this is the, the c in the other side, it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, it was bitter in my stomach. And what would be the third line that's parallel with the line that says the angel told the, him to eat the book? You must prophesy. You must what? You must prophesy again. So eating the book must have something to do with what? With taking the message of the book and prophesying or sharing it. Are you with me or not? Now, we're going to develop this. We only have five minutes, but we're going to develop this as far as we can. Now, the chiastic structure is important because it shows that John eating the scroll in verse 9a is the same as uttering a prophecy from it in verse 11. Thus, when John ate the scroll, a message came out from it the first time, but it became necessary for the message to be preached again from the same scroll a second time. 
It is very clear that the episode that deals with the eating of the book precedes Revelation 10 verse 7 in time. We've already covered this. How do we know this to be the case? The reason is obvious. After John eats the little book he is told to prophesy again and to measure the temple. If the mystery of God, that is the preaching of the gospel, had already been finished and probation had closed, what good would it do to prophesy again about the contents of the book and to talk about the investigative judgment? Verses 8 through 11 take us back to events that occurred between verses 6 and 7. Fortunately, there's a background to this eating of the book, an Old Testament background. Now notice uh, the next section, and this will be our final uh, point, the bittersweet experience. And then when we get together tomorrow, I'm going to read you some of the statements from the pioneers after the Great Disappointment. And we're going to take a look at a parallel between the Great Disappointment in the days of Christ and the Great Disappointment in 1844. In fact, do you know something interesting? The Great Disappointment in 1844 was not unique. Every time that Jesus moved into a new work in the sanctuary, there was a disappointment similar to this one. In fact, there were four disappointments, and one in the future. Let me ask you, when Jesus came to this earth, where did he come first? Did he come to the court first? No. Do you know, we usually study the sanctuary, we begin studying the sanctuary at the court. It's a mistake. We have to start studying the sanctuary in the camp. Because the Bible says that Jesus came to camp with us. <laughs> in fact, it says in John 1.14, the word was made flesh and dwelt, but the word is tabernacled. He pitched his tent among us. You see, the court is where the, the animals were sacrificed. The camp is where the, where the sinners lived. Before the death of Jesus could have value, he had to live a perfect life in our midst. And he does that in the camp. Amen. He lives for us and he then dies for us. And then he intercedes for us and then he judges us. Amen. And then he comes for us. It's all a package deal. It's all revealed in the sanctuary. Let me ask you, who was the individual that God called to uh, proclaim the coming of the Messiah? John the Baptist. John the Baptist. Of course, John the Baptist, he understood very well what he was preaching, right? No, no. no he didn't. He thought there was only going to be one coming of the Messiah. And he introduced Jesus when Jesus came. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He had no doubts. A little later on he's in prison. He said, are you the one we were expecting? Or should we expect another? Great disappointment because he misunderstood what Jesus was going to do. But Ellen White says that when in prison, the angels drew near to him when he sent out the disciples, you know, to ask Jesus whether he was the one. Jesus healed the sick and he cast out demons and opened the eyes of the blind. They came back and they, they told John, this is what he does. And the angels brought to the mind of John the Baptist the prophecy of Isaiah 60, which Jesus began his ministry with in Nazareth. He came to open the eyes of the blind. To, to heal the brokenhearted, etc. And, and he said, the Messiah's coming has two stages, not one. So he died in peace. The disappointment was explained with scripture. Amen. Let me ask you, when Jesus entered in the triumphal entry, did they have prophecy all wrong? Oh, yes. 
Oh, the time was right, but they had the event wrong. Were their hopes dashed? You better believe. Did they go through a horrible disappointment? Yes. But after the resurrection, Jesus caught up to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus and opened up the scripture to them. They said, how could we miss it? The disappointment was explained. Even on the day of Pentecost, when Jesus entered his role, see, Jesus is moving. John the Baptist is in the camp. Then he moves to the court, and there's a disappointment there when he dies. And then on the day of Pentecost, there's a disappointment too. You say, how's that? Did the disciples actually misunderstand what Jesus was going to do at that point? You know, they asked Jesus, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel at this time? And instead of that, Jesus goes to heaven. Is there an explanation after that? Yes. There most certainly is an explanation of that. Peter explained it on the day of Pentecost. Amen. Amen. So 1844 isn't unique. If people say Adventist, the Adventist church cannot be the true church because it started with a disappointment, then all of Christianity has to be thrown out. Yeah. Because every time Jesus moved, there was a disappointment. And you say, then why did Jesus move? Because Jesus had a calendar of events. There was a date for his birth. There was a date for his baptism when he would enter the, the, the encampment. There was a date for his death. There was a date, the day of Pentecost, for his beginning, his intercession. There was a date for 1844. So, and by the way, I have a series called uh, The Great Disappointments of the Sanctuary where I deal with this. It's amazing. So what does Jesus do? He's going to say, well, I better change my calendar and wait because these people don't understand. No, he says, I'll move, they'll understand later. And he follows his calendar of events. And then afterwards, his people catch up. His people are always playing, playing catch up. But there's coming a time when we won't be able to catch up anymore. So we better make sure that we understand what Jesus is doing now. Well, we'll leave the bittersweet section for tomorrow. Because time is up. Um, and we'll finish studying this material, and then I'll be dealing with a few other things relating to Revelation 10. Did you understand what we studied this afternoon? Yes. Praise the Lord. Does it, does it describe to a T the experience of the Advent movement? Yes. Absolutely. No doubt about it. All of the details square perfectly with what happened in history. By the way, tonight the booth will be open. This is the book I was talking to you about. Many materials back there uh, that are very valuable. We hope to see you back there. God bless. God bless you. We'll see you around. <laughs>